Welcome to the Minimalist CEO Podcast with Nate Lindquist. Nate created the Minimalist CEO Method to help business owners redefine and grow their businesses by finding new demand in places they never thought to look where there's no competition. By following his opposite thinking strategy, Nate's coaching clients have grown their business up to 40% in just two months and created tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Nate himself has launched more than 140 businesses. On the show, Nate interviews successful business owners and experts who share the secrets you can use to have a better business and a better life. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Nate Linquist here with the Minimalist CEO Podcast, and that's a wrap. I'm just kidding. We're minimalist, but we're not that minimalist. Uh, we're excited for another episode. We're glad that you're here. I hope you didn't accidentally just switch to another podcast, do another search we got a good episode here, and uh, there's no secret that we have great guests. People have done good things in business, have had uh, gotten to the point where they've earned their stripes, and they've got some insights to share. Also, we like to challenge all of our guests so to see what they've done, to strip things away, focus on what's essential, and create success. And hopefully, while you're listening, you can find that gold nugget. It only takes one that gives you the breakthrough, gives you the insight, helps you move in a new direction, start something, stop something, whatever it is. But our guest here is the owner of Architecture EL. I'll let him explain what it is, but Kevin Rothschild, Shay, welcome to the Minimal CEO Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad that you're here. And so we could make this really simple and just call you an architect, but obviously you've got a lot of things on your plate. Uh, share what your expertise is. What's this business that you have and what's the, what's the top problem that you solve in your business? Well, uh, architects, we, that's the, the focus of our life is problem solving, whether it's a design or, uh, you know, fitting a pipe in a wall. But our focus is uh, largely in multifamily housing with a special bent towards affordable housing. Uh, we really have uh, enjoyed the opportunity to solve uh, much needed housing needs and demands for those that are uh, suffering deficits in their their housing and residential life. And it's it's really an important piece to, to everyone's life to have a good, safe place to live and sleep and, and work from. Uh, so that's really become one of our uh, one of our core strengths and a core of our business. So both in design and as a kind of a mission statement, you know, taking care of people and doing good design for people close to home where they live. So how, how do you navigate that? Obviously, you know, what are the marketing tricks that we've heard from day one is don't market to people without money. But if you're looking to help people create affordable housing, but you don't want to have your prices raised to the bottom. Are you working with developers? Are you working with, with investor groups? Who, who is your primary buyer? And how do you navigate that kind of a challenge, knowing that you're creating affordable housing in areas that may be underserved? Yeah, it's a good question. We're working primarily with uh, professional profit and nonprofit uh, agencies, uh, community development corporations, private development corporations that know the ropes. They know how to get the money. They know how to appeal to the HUD, to the state agencies, housing uh, and departments, and uh, it takes years to go after these projects. Um, you know, a, a small multifamily or affordable housing project, 34, 50, or even 500 units, that could be on the books for three, four, five years. Sometimes two to the first two to three, just getting the job funded and approved and off the ground so we can so we can actually uh, put uh, put pencil to paper or maybe must screen here. Yeah. Uh, but you have yeah. to have a pipeline where, I mean, you must have some projects that get into the race that get into your, into your sales funnel here. 
And you're talking about three years, five years, or sometimes even longer to be able to start the process, get the approvals and be able to start designing. Yeah. That's uh yeah, we have a lot of jobs in the hopper and they take a long time. We have one we just permitted uh, and I think we started it or it was the first call might've been two years ago. We just got local approval. Now we can at now with local approval, we can apply for funding, which could take six to 18 months. And then once it's funded, then we have to finish the drawings and then go build it. So we're still looking down the pipe at three more years. So, so how do you, I mean, what does someone do when they're getting into architecture? Maybe they're one or two years into it. They've got, you know, one project that they got their hands deep in the dirt and maybe they got one pending. They're talking to a developer. How do they stay in business? How do you get enough projects going so that, you know, you're not robbing Peter to pay Paul or have the feast or famine that it seems to be very, uh, much the standard in the architectural field. Yeah, it's purely. And then some of it, sometimes we're working uh, on margins or waiting to get paid for three or six months because the developers don't always have, they're not fully funded either. (laughs) So sometimes we're participating in the development and then hoping to get the cherry on top or at least come out of it with a job that uh, keep you you employed and funded for a couple of years. So Uh, you're projecting projects that are going to pay you for months or years and then still waiting for projects to come in that could be pending for months or years. You're waiting for retainage. You're waiting for funding from the banks. You're waiting for groups that said, oh, we're going to send you the check and we just don't have it yet. I mean, how do you, like what, obviously you, how long you been in business, Kevin? We've been since 08. So going on 14 years here. Good timing, 2008. Like how did the dynamic of the great recession affect this brilliant startup of Kevin Rothschild Shea's business? So the, the core of all this would be uh, sweat equity, a little ambition, and a little bit of, we'll call it naivety, and we'll be generous, not then call me stupid. But <laughs> How many months did you have to live in a tent to uh, be able to get this business off the ground? Oh, yeah. The first, I mean, I started, so, you know, the, the long saga, I, I think I, I was with a company for 18 years, uh, and as, as all swan songs go, it, it was not meant to be, and I saw the writing on the wall, and I said, well... I'm just going to go do this myself mm-hmm. or with a laptop on a kitchen table and uh, pure sweat equity, knowing your name, having good clients that just cared about me, not the company name, follow me. And then I wrote it out lean and mean for that, for the first couple of years. It was, it was rough. You have kids. Uh, you married? Yeah. I'm married. I have four kids. Okay. That's cool. I can relate to that. Uh, we've, I'm married. We got six kids. Oof. And uh, <laughs> beautiful life that we have. So, but there's a being the provider, being the business owner, having the stress of a startup in arguably the, the worst economy, the worst industry, <laughs> the biggest, most competitive, challenging space. I mean, I, I know a bunch of architects who called us because they're like, okay, now we're not getting paid. Now, at that time, I lost two of my clients who I lost had millions, tens of millions of dollars in notes that they weren't able to pay because they're developers. So they got all these foundations and all this marketing material. And guess what's happening with those foundations? They're just sitting there. And you get all these designers, the in-house engineers, not getting paid. And you're like, this is a perfect time. I think I'll open up an architectural (laughs) firm. What were you thinking? (laughs) Uh, Well, you can imagine, I probably was thinking I didn't have too many good choices. It was either suck it up and take an unhappy situation uh, which is a bad way to live, a bad way to role model for your kids, mm-hmm. or take a shot and do something you know you could do. And you take 
a little bit of skill, a little bit of experience and a little bit of luck and you just grind through it. And, you know, I admit I probably got lucky with a couple of jobs when you're one person, you need that one job that carries you mm-hmm. up for the next one. And then, then it gets to be logarithmic over time. More jobs you have, the more experience you have, the more connections, the more calls. So then, you know, when I went from one to two people, that was massive growth. You know, I had to be able to, you know, cut my hours from working like a maniac to then being able to manage a second payroll. But then every person you add after that gets easier and easier. How many people do you have on your, on your team? There's eight of us. Eight, so, okay. So, and you had, uh, you had to get out, get some money in the bank you know, buy some groceries, put gas in the car. What was the runway? How long did it take between taking the leap and getting paid, getting your first payment? And so you're like, you know, I'm seeing scenes from like Jerry Maguire where he puts all the muffins on the plate and he was, everyone's staring at the fast fax machine waiting for the first deal to come in for, yep. uh, for his player. What, what, how long was that? How long did you have to hold your breath? I, well... In the exit strategy from plan A to B, I probably had a couple months cash in the comfortable, you know, cash in the bank. So it was probably... Did you say a couple months? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Not talking deep pockets or big cushion. So... Incentive. You were motivated. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so I would say it was... I think I left and I almost had, you know, a couple small jobs right away. Uh, so at least I wasn't feeling like I was slipping backwards or treading water when I was get, getting things set up because, okay. you know, my, my setup costs were pretty modest. So I was lucky there. And then those turned into a couple others. And then I literally, in probably the worst of the recession, I picked up a job that carried me for an entire year. And without that, it might have been a completely different story. But you were able to uh, get the, the CAD software, get your office set up, what, work from home? It's at the beginning. At the beginning, I it worked from the out of a den or the kitchen table, and then I moved to a pretty cheap. I think within, I think it was six months, eight months. Worked to a cheap artist studio out of a mill. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking like four hundred bucks a month rent. You know, just brick walls. Uh, you know, rusty old windows. A lot of fun artists and a lot of quirky people. And I think think that lasted a year, and then it, you know, like I said, everything just kept on popping from there. Yeah. So you, now did you have to put on the sales hat at the same time? I mean, you were in every hat. Oh yeah. Sales, bookkeeping. Did you have any help in any of that stuff? Or was like, listen, I just got to do it all. Opening no, mail. I uh, did all, all my own. Of course, in my past life, I had experience with in-house as a small firm that I left before. We did our own marketing, did all our own design, did our drawings, did the specs, uh, experience with the contracts. Uh, the only thing I had, and I had experience with the bookkeeping and the finances as well, but I think I just started with a part-time bookkeeper who would just give me a, you know, a couple hours a month just to make sure the books didn't go wonky on me. And, um, and then we just went from there. I love what you're sharing, Kevin, that you started at arguably the worst possible time in the last, I don't know, if you look over the last couple of decades, that could have been the worst time. And yet you uh, kept things lean. You focused on what needed to happen. You kept the wheel turning, got some smaller projects in. At what point did, because uh, I, mean, I, th- I think of all the distractions that come up in business, was there ever a point where you found yourself working on the wrong thing, something that wasn't moving you forward? Yeah, I think we all struggle with that. I don't know if I could point to any one uh, specific job. And I you know, have a friend that you know, talks about 
firing his best, worst client. You know, this is my best client, but they, they could be a complete burden to the business, a constant draw on your time and never feeding you financially or rewarding you otherwise. I've had a few, I've been lucky in that regard. I've had a few deadbeats and a few anchors on us. And then I've had a few people that were struggling and I've kind of shown them some mercy and tried to help them out because if somebody didn't help me and give me a shot at one point, you know, I wouldn't be here where I am and nor. So I've, I've kind of shared some of that a little bit along the way. So what size is your operation? If you could, you know, give us a measuring stick. So people who are, we've got a lot of listeners here who have businesses that are doing half a million, some that are just startup, some that are, you know, some that who are listening are doing a hundred million dollars. So where right. do you fit into that? So let's see. So we're on the, not the hundred million side of the spectrum. <laughs> we're a smaller Western business. Yeah. So we're a smaller business. We're a, a Western mass uh, suburb. I think for reference, it took me the first, I think it took me three or so years to three and a half years to make my first million bucks or something, literally. Okay. And you can imagine starting in 08 when you're trying to work and eat, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you've broken past the million dollar gross mark, annual gross mark for the business. And you're, you're now, are you, you're past that sort of survival and stability mode. You're in that sort of consistent success mode, would you say at this point? I would say we are in the, certainly in the consistent mode, but success is always a challenging measure. So I would say, you know, for instance, that what took us that first three to four years to make, so we probably do about 1.8 or two a year. So right now I've, you know, this year and every year is up and down, especially when you look back at the cash flow. Sometimes we're cash flowing 30, 60, you know, 90, 100 days in terms of the work. So it's sometimes tough to see the exact picture. Yeah. So we've probably done um, the first million by the, by, you know, the first half of this year. So we're probably typically around one, one eight. And it goes up and down pretty dramatically. Uh, Do you ever feel in your business like you've hit a glass ceiling? Like you've, you've kind of like, if I go try to get bigger, it might mean less profit or just too much details oh. or too much to manage. The detail, maybe I'm good with detail. You guys, you have to be in the trade. Yeah. I feel like the people aren't the dollars. Uh, the, my first experience, the first firm, we were actually smaller. We were four people. And we probably turned a higher profit margin because there was four of us that put our nose down and knew how to turn out a product. Right. Now, you, now I'm right in the mid-management, right? Now I've got a little bit more overhead. I've got a full-time office manager, bookkeeper. I've got one guy that's half dedicated to CAD and technology and keeping the office growing. Mm-hmm. So, so you end up right in that midpoint where your, your margins actually can go down if you're not careful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get um, really challenging. So, and the other side, I feel like I'm at the max because as a, as, you know, as the, the owner, the, the leading architect in the firm, it's, it's almost, there's only, there's like a ratio of like one to four or five that it feels like you can comfortably manage. So yeah. having seven or eight under one means I'm always, always jumping and hustling because there's not enough of me to go around and then trying mm-hmm. to keep each of those on track. And if I miss anybody, they could go off track for hours, days, or, you know, God forbid weeks and burn time. Mm-hmm. So it's, I feel like there's a lot more room to be efficient. I don't feel like growth helps unless you have, uh, I would, I think I'd need two strong people that could lead a project without question. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, you know, right now, that's kind of not in the mix and doesn't mm. fit our model. 
Yeah, I think one thing we talk about at Minimal as CEO and, you know, with over the last 30 years of making mistakes and then the last 15, 17 years of, uh, you know, I started when I was 16 and, uh, you know, really mostly just mistakes. But as I started consulting and, and then, you know, becoming the contract CEO and seeing the space between the, say, one and a half to $5 million mark, the getting beyond that has always been a different definition of big for those who actually enjoy it. And so as I listen to what you're sharing, I, it, to me, this sounds like an opportunity to put some focus on leverage, looking at um, how you can have fewer inputs and greater ROI without necessarily having to add more people. So looking at the nature of your projects, looking at how your business provides service, I always find that there's a hidden something or other inside the business that's oftentimes dramatically more valuable than the actual service that you're currently offering. And it could be you know, the way that you make your business a clearinghouse for younger architects. It could be the way that you help other people in the space. You know, obviously you're very knowledgeable at what you do, but um, yeah, I think it comes down to leverage. So I'll be curious to see where you go over the next five or 10 years because <laughs> the new definition of big can, you know, for some people, big means more staff, more overhead, more stress, less margin. And you're kind of at that threshold right now where you, you get to make that choice. What are your goals? Where do you want to see yourself, if, if, say, a year from now, a year, maybe five years from now? I know. Getting old enough, the years go by fast, you know. <laughs> maybe you need an exit plan, sort of a package deal. Oh, no. Well, well, as we were saying before the interview, when you start out, you want to, when you start, you want to plan your exit, right? Yeah. The, uh, we're honestly, it's my growth is uh, definitely want to see the right numbers come in. But the growth at my age, I really want to also you know, see the quality of the product and the quality yeah. of the mind and then have the, have the dollars supported. Obviously I want to retire. I want to be comfortable. I want to have, yeah. some but yeah, after, you know, if you look at us generationally, what, what also happened with that recession is a whole generation of architects didn't retire and then held on to the jobs that were out there, scooping those up. And then by the time the economy rebounded, the next generation's coming up. So now okay. the next wave and then us guys get stuck, uh, or architects, we get in the middle space where there was this whole window, almost a generation of opportunities that we had to struggle to grab because mm. the experienced uh, old timers that everybody always called on had the big name, had the firm, they were grabbing the work. They're like, then, yeah, we'll do another 10 years because our investments just tanked. Yeah. Oh, well, they had to. Yeah, they, they all wanted to. They were, you know, every idol stalled. They did, yeah, their right. retirement plan was to either sell their business or rake in a few more good years. And instead, mm -hmm. everything was sucked dry. So then they had to hang around a couple more years to make it up and get and get back into position so they could have a comfortable retirement. Yeah, I but, think a lot of businesses are facing that. And a lot of people, a lot of businesses are also facing people who don't want to work. And how do they get the help that they need? So I would love it if we kind of switch gears here for a moment. Could you share a failure or a challenge that unlocked success for you? So Maybe even if it's a small win or a favorite failure that you might share, <laughs> um, where you looked at it, you could maybe maybe it took hindsight to look back and be like, that needed to happen. I know you shared the one of leaving the, the smaller firm that you were a part of and going out on your own, but I think we all have that, you know, our favorite moments where we got knocked on our butt. And it's like, you know what, that really gave me the keys to a new insight, to a turning point of some fashion. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, well, unfortunately, that's probably one of the, the the obvious huger ones, right? That was life life changing, right? And I, mm -hmm. the biggest out of that, the biggest lesson there was 
and I probably continue to struggle with was the fact that I waited way too long, way too long. Right. And in that I gave way too much of my time, energy, and talent to somebody else. And that should have been mine and should have been mine invested. And that was, you know, that was a, a, a painful lesson when you look back, mm. uh, even when I was making the plan to transition, I still gave too much time and, and waited to jump. I can relate to that in my own business, in the marketing firm. It's like my business started to become black and white and everything outside of it seemed like full color. And I was seeking and I was like, there's more here. And the thing is, I actually, I think, became a slave to what I started. It's like I took advice from a 16-year-old, what I was going to create. And now that I had it, it was like, well, this is what I built. I don't want to lose it. But I waited too long too. And I got my butt kicked. And But I look back at that moment, that epiphany that I had was like, I was scared to death. You know, I had that. Did you ever have that? Did you have that moment where you're like, oh my God, I guess now I have to figure this out. And you're kind of like the cold sweat. How am I going to tell my family moment? Did you have that? No, <laughs> you didn't have that. So I, it was, you would think, well, like even when I switched then, right. It's like, I made the, we're talking life. You know, my wife always says, oh, we don't take risks. I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. (laughs) We went out and started a business at the worst time in the world. Right. But going back to a job or a business that isn't serving you anymore, that's far more risky. Yeah, it's yeah, true. So what happened? What did you feel like? I mean, take us to that moment. What happened in that moment? Honestly, when I see the reality is at the time, there was basically a couple op. There were a couple options presented to me. And it was a little frightening because it completely upended the plan that was supposed to be there. You know, you'd spend 20 or 10 years working towards a plan and then all of a sudden the rugs pulled out from under you, right? Mm-hmm. And I had, after years and years and years of going down a path, I was given what I would feel felt like a, a bit of an ultimatum, but basically I was given about 10 days to make a decision, which obviously didn't sit real well. And in that, I went back, not with the decision based on the two options that were presented, which was option C or the a new option, which then obviously led to my exit and my start. And that might've been the scariest thing, just having to just sit down and say, you know what, those are your ideas, but here's a new idea and this is going to hurt. And off I went. And, yeah. the is, I never and then you clench and you I do never, it. Yeah. And I never looked back though. Yeah. Never. I mean, for, we're talking years Never looked back, didn't doubt, didn't, no regret, no, you know, might have been worried about paying some bills or hustling or making it work. But to that degree, I never, never looked back. And doesn't do you any damn good, does it? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) (laughs) drive home tonight, or if you're home, drive somewhere for, you know, drive wherever you're going to go in the rearview mirror. It's like something bad's going to (laughs) happen. That's good. Well, I love what you've done. And I think that, that, you know, I think that for me, it was a very scary moment, but it was, it was like a 24 hour, like, I love to tell this story because you have to tell a story because everyone wants to have the marketing story. But the truth is making that turn is messy. You know, people are offended. People are hurt. They feel violent. It's like, dude, this is my life. I've got a family to take care of. What you laid in front of me or what's happening in this situation isn't going to work. I had people who were on my team. You know, I brought in some very, very key people. One person was an economist and had a relationship with Disney and Harvard uh, Pilgrim Healthcare. Really, I brought in some really high profile people to grow my agency and things were growing. 
And I was like, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. And I started letting people go and saying like, what, you know, taking time and a little bit at a time saying, how can we find some work for you? And it was uh, all of a sudden it was like, oh, three of my biggest clients just left and a merger failed. Then it was like, then it was like sweat stinging my eyes, drove home, sat in the driveway for six hours. I never turned on the air conditioning. I never rolled down the windows. And I was like, um, you know, this wealthy lifestyle, this, this sort of story, this big story that I created sort of crashed around me and I had to redefine my identity. So, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of people talk about what they add to their business to make it better. And at that point for me, that's when I started to have the like, you know, what's in it for them? How may I serve? And it was more about what I was going to strip away. What could I do in that situation with almost nothing? I had $75,000 a month in overhead, 22 employees, uh, 12 who were full-time, the rest were contract that were acting, behaving as full-time, you know, because they were really busy and, and that was our way of growing. And so it was, it got to the point where it's like, what am I going to strip away? So I'd be curious in that moment, obviously along the way, there's a handful of things that you do have to not give attention to, that you have to say no to, that you have to cut away to win. And I'd be curious what jumps up for you that you had to strip away, that you had to not do, you know, to get in your line, stay in your line and make this business work. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you just... The living lean is what it, I mean, when you talk about stripping overhead and just what can you do when you're doing it yourself and you're just trying to figure out how you can get enough in the bank to keep the money flowing, especially those first couple of years, mm-hmm. I mean, you're stripping away creature comforts, space, food, you know, everything you're stripping away. You No going out for long lunches. And no, no, you're not going, no, no, no. You're not, you're, are you eating lunch, right? <laughs> you know, or are you Who needs lunch? <laughs> I mean, when you talk about stripped down to nothing, you know, in those bare bones days, right? Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that drives me is, right? You know, I remember what it was like to not have work and go to the post office hoping to see a check in the mailbox because you had no dollars in the bank and you needed it for Friday so that you could at least get some money in your hands so you could pay your mortgage or get groceries in the house. And, mm-hmm. and go uh, home as if everything's okay. And still live life and go to Little League, you know, and try to take care of the kids. So those are daunting, you know, and frightening things to, to face. And you're doing it seat of the pants, zero overhead. Like, you know, I mean, get to work. We spend now what I, you know, in a couple of days, what I used to spend in a month, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I was accused at that time of years, years later, I was accused of. I had a company that was doing millions of dollars in business and I'd have months where we do, you know, 150, 200, sometimes $300,000 at the time in a marketing firm that I started to hate and started to sort of shrivel up. I'd say shrivel up. I grew, I ballooned to 206 pounds. I'm, I'm 167 pounds right now. And, you know, I got, I was really just sort of stressed out, you know, you know, if you ever stand up from your work, you probably have where your legs are numb oh, and, yeah. and you go to the bathroom and you're like, it's four in the morning. Why am I still at the office doing this? And I actually had been there to the point where it'd be three days in a row. And I'd like, I had a shower in one of my offices, but I would go in shower or not even have yet be walking down the hallway and my staff's all coming in, getting in there, going into their offices. I haven't even left and they don't don't get it. But this is interesting, Kevin. I I was accused by people around me who were used to hearing and seeing things that look like success as a father and a husband and as a parent and as a brother, sister, son, whatever it was, 
you don't run around telling people that things are going to hell. You say everything's going to be fine because your focus is on it's going to be fine. Everything's good. For me, I learned you don't talk about the stuff that's going wrong. You focus on what you're going to make right. And I had people say to me, why did you lie about your success all those years? It's like shit hit the fan. My job was to make sure the people around me felt safe and knew that things were going to be okay. I bet you had to tell your wife and at oh, the yeah. time and maybe your kids like, it's good. Everything's fine. Oh yeah. That's, Everything, yeah. It's good. It's good. And you can't blame a business owner for doing that. And so I commend you for going through that, not looking in the rearview mirror. And I remember you talk about scantiest fare, sort of that stoic moment. I remember consigning and then selling my BMW for like a $300 loss and getting $170 payment on a program uh, Ford Escape yep. that was like stripped down to nothing. Bear. And what's that? Bear, roll up windows, right? Yeah. And I'm like, when I, the deal, this is why I made the deal. I'm driving away, seeing my BMW, knowing that I'm getting, I'm losing $300 to do this. I had to put it on a Discover card that had a little bit, just a little bit of money on it. And I remember putting it on the credit card and driving away thinking just everything was like, you know, the UHF, it's like, you know, my whole life really sucks. The story that I had is not what I thought. And I'm driving home. And I remember that's the air conditioning piece, but I remember like they said, I wouldn't have to make the payment for three months because of the special deal. Don't pay for three, 90 days, no payments. And I'm thinking, I hope to hell it's true <laughs> that I have one deal so I get to keep my car. And I was looking up, how long does it take? I had $7,300 in the bank, $75,000 in overhead. I had just lost one, just over a million dollars. And my three biggest clients and a merger failed where I'm just, you know, a merger fails. I was getting ready for the lawsuits. Like, who are my investors? Well, you know, this is an ugly... It, I'd love to go back and make it look like a perfect story. And I know there's no such thing because I was there and I know it sucked, but it did give me the opportunity to see something in a different way, which was, you don't have to have all the answers. There's people out there. If you really take good care of people and treat people well and do good work and get to work and get all the other crap out of the way, you can build a business into a helping system. And it sounds, Kevin, like that's what you've done. So well, yeah, you're like some tip, we're perpetual optimists, right? Always hoping, planning yeah. is going to make the best thing work. And, mm. you know, even in our small business, wanted in the last couple of years too, you know, the whole time it's the first year of COVID, right? I think after the first COVID shutdown, right? I don't think we started a new job for eight weeks. Mm. You know, not one new job. We're just burning through backlog. Mm. And you start wondering, well, you know, sorry, now it's June and July, what are we going to start doing? And then you just start caring people. But, you know, the, the important thing to your point about taking care of people and building people up and doing what you say you're going to do. And, you know, we want to be successful and we want your people to be successful, but we don't have the answer is that if we weren't optimists or hopeful for the next job and the next opportunity, and we're still in growth mode, then maybe that's one of the things that kind of sets people apart from the ones that are in business and the ones that are maybe working for people that are in business. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's it's a time where a lot of people spend a bunch of time talking about what they're going to do. And then there's people like you, Kevin, who gets to work. So I dig what you've done. And you know, I think that you've been willing to, I look at the who and the how acronym. I landed on this at one point when I was writing my book, Excuse Removal Blueprint. And the, the concept is this, that if you are always saying, how am I going to do it? And you think you're the one who's responsible for everything that you've accomplished. You did have to do the work because you were there. But look at all the people around you. If you ask how, 
and you try to do it all yourself and think, I'm going to be the one with the answers. I'm going to be the one with the money. I'm going to be the one with the support. We don't realize these people aren't under you because they're less than you. They're under you because they're holding you up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, the how is huge overwhelm and waiting when it's all on you. But then you can switch it to who, which is who can help out. And clearly, we're turtles on fence post. I love what you've done. If you could share something with our listeners, now that you've gotten down this path and you're making progress, you have the opportunity to just put a message out there that tens of thousands of people are going to hear. And uh, incidentally, it doesn't have to be about business, but just it can be about anything, but something, a message you'd like to share with a platform like this, I'd love to know what that would be. Oh yeah. I think just simply, you know, if, if you have the the desire or drive or want to do something just to do it, you know, don't, don't, maybe it's cliche. Don't listen to the naysayers, right? Uh, there's always those that have a million reasons why you can't do something. Right. And those are the people that will never do anything. All you need to do is find that one reason to want to do it, even if it's just because you want to, or you find the one way to do it and, and you just do because that's just in your blood and you can't sleep at night and you can't live with yourself. And the money and success aside. It's a dividend, isn't it? Yeah. It's better to take the shot, you know, to try, right? Than to, to not try and, and fail. So it, it's that's the one thing I would say is if you have the desire or drive, do what's in your heart. Mm-hmm. Do it because you want to do it because you have a talent for it. Don't do something because you think you're going to get rich doing it. Do it because you want to. And then then all the fruits of your labor will follow. Yeah, I, I agree with you, man. That's a great message. And I think that everyone has amazing gifts and what a shame to hide them behind comforts or safety or ego or talking. Maybe, uh, you know, I look at the 90 pound woman who lifted the car off her son. How did she do it? She had a reason bigger than herself. And I'd be curious what in your business was a reason as you made this turn? What was bigger than you that made it happen? Because obviously you had everything stacked against you. <laughs> oh, boy. I want to be an architect. I hope I survive. What was bigger it that got you? you up when you were knocked down? Well, probably having the family behind me, right? No one, may, you know, all the scary times having the depth of support with, with family, just that that one thing can can make the difference. Carry whether you're conscious of it or not. Just have people there to support you can make a yeah. huge difference. And you see yourself as a provider for them, so you're not going to let them down. That's for sure. Awesome. All right. Well, Kevin, thanks for being on the podcast, man. This has been what great, and I think very insightful for people who might want to get started in business. People who are in business who are like, "Wow, I thought I had it hard." And, <laughs> and I think you shared some great insights. Uh, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. We went longer than normal. And I think it's because uh, you were transparent and you, you shared some good stuff. So I appreciate it. I want to uh, I want to tell all our listeners, you know, one thing that we're looking to do moving forward is just make sure that you subscribe and have access to the podcast because we're going to be having some new solo casts. We're going to be having something every Thursday we're going to be announcing pretty soon, which is free insight behind the scenes of some of our, our actual live coaching calls, live Zoom calls where you can hear some of the challenges other business owners are having. You can hear some people who are ahead of you, some who are right where you are, and some who are behind you and how they're having breakthroughs. So please subscribe, download this, pay attention to The Minimalist CEO on Facebook. Just go to The Minimalist CEO. And you can also go to The Minimalist CEO on YouTube and you'll see the podcast. There's going to be a lot of new content going in there on Thursdays. Um, we're calling that The Turning Point session. So The Minimalist CEO Turning Point Sessions Uh, We're going to give you a peek in behind the green door, in this case, the orange and black door. And uh, we're we're on a mission to help people focus on what's essential, to strip away the waste and the junk food marketing. 
to eliminate competition, not by getting rid of them, by really becoming fascinated with helping more people and understanding where they aren't getting the help. You know, peel the label off your industry, focus on the underserved and help more people. That's the magic. So thanks for being here for the podcast. We will be here with another episode. Uh, thanks to all our sponsors and I appreciate you and that you're here. Send us your questions, help at the minimalist CEO.com. Go be a minimalist CEO. Not sure how? Let me know. <laughs>